No, you're fine. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight. We're sorry for the technical difficulties, um, but we're bringing you a very special guest for the podcast turning to our 40th episode. Um, so we'd like you to welcome uh, Tom Crutchfield to the show tonight. Um, we're really glad to have you, Tom. And uh, I know you've gotten to hang out with Anthony and Kevin and Shannon a bit before. So um, it's almost like we're having an old friend back on again. It does. It's nice to see y'all again. Yes. We're so happy you could be a part of this. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, go online with us. Uh, we have a lot of people that are excited to talk to you, you know, and um, I'm just going to ask you some questions, see what you have to talk about, you know? Okay. Yeah, we're pretty excited. I should say I normally wear a cutoff, a cutoff T-shirt on these broadcasts, but today I, do, I decided to wear this suit. We've got the Michael Jordan of herpeticulture with us here. And I know well, my wife is. Best, a, you definitely are the best dressed herper I've ever seen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. This is, this is, I don't normally do this. I didn't know what to do. I was nervous and uh, I decided to, to go with this. I, I, I definitely um, regret the decision now that you made fun of me, but I don't blame you. <laughs> and my wife, I know my wife is excited because she's been talking about you ever since we met you that day. You definitely left an impression. So, um, so thank you. She's laughing about the suit. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> it's all right please keep it coming it makes it for an easy hour if we if we uh, get made fun of so keep it coming no problem <laughs> so um tell us a little bit about how things have been recently i mean uh, obviously florida had a a pretty um significant storm recently and and what that looks like for somebody with the amount of animals that you have and um you know anything maybe noteworthy that's been going on down there well, with uh, the animals we have, particularly with animals that are, have a potential to be dangerous to the public at large, you have to go through extra special steps to make sure that in the event of a natural disaster that you're prepared for it and that there's, uh, the animals are secured so they pose no damage to the general public. If the worst happened and let's say the buildings that they were in blew away and that was what we were worried about because we were looking at, at first, a, a Cat 5 storm. Now, uh, and, and we actually got hit with probably a high cat three with winds in excess, probably about 120 miles an hour for probably 20 hours straight through. So it was the worst hurricane I've ever been in by far. And, you know, it's not my first one. Uh, but we had uh, the venomous snakes were our biggest concern. And we had to individually bag every single one. And I have these special wooden boxes with layers. It'll hold maybe 25 to 35 cobras per level, depending on how, how uh, big the cobras are. And I have four levels per box, and I had three of those boxes literally full of cobras. And every one of them had to be individually bagged up, and you can't bag them too far in advance of the storm. So that means 24 hours before the storm hit, I have to catch about 250 cobras, bag them all up, put them in the boxes, and all the rest of the venomous snakes too, as far as that goes, and put them inside the house. Uh, the, our house, uh, the walls are solid concrete with, with poured concrete with rebar. I mean, the eye of Hurricane Andrew went over this house and it didn't damage it. This hurricane didn't damage the house either. But uh, whether it damaged the roof some. But the, uh, uh, it blew enough shingles off, we're probably going to have to have a new roof. But I mean, there's no structural damage to the house. What I was worried about was some of the exterior buildings. Uh, they were uh, anchored into the elytic limestone here and they're supposed to we I paid quite a bit for them, and they were supposed to stand up to a full Cat 2 hurricane, which, of course, we had a Cat 3, 
and they stood up to that just fine too. But the animals, there was no animals in the buildings. All of them were inside the house with us in these special boxes, all the venomous animals. Uh, so the, a lot of the animals were left outside if they had a place to get out of the weather. They okay. actually do better than that than moving them in because the stress of catching them and putting them inside is more stressful than leaving them outside if they have shelter. So, but, but our biggest concern were the things that could blow around and get damaged in some way, you know, with the storm and the outdoor cages that could get crumpled and anything that would be really dangerous to the public. So, oh, oh, but we oh, did, oh, did everything work out well? No, no escapes, nothing. It it it, it did work out well uh, because we had uh, we had a plan for this. We had planned our work, and then we worked our plan. We had the disaster plan in in, in effect. We started and, it in Connecticut, and we started uh, actually we were in Connecticut when we started the planning, and everything was done here uh, until the very last minute. I got down here uh, a day before the storm. I we bagged up all of the cobras. Then the day after the storm, I put all of the cobras back up in the cages. And then four days, four days later, we left for Peru. <laughs> I thought it was the best thing seeing you guys, the picture of you guys on the plane coming down to Florida and you were alone on the plane and nobody else was Yeah, around. That was the best. Unbelievable. That was actually at a Bradley airport. Yeah. So great. Oh, wow. I've been on those flights before. Those planes are never empty going down to Florida. There's yeah. always tons of retirees on those planes. Not on this one. <laughs> Wow, and, 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 and you know, at that point, we thought we were going back to a Cat 5 storm, so, mm -hmm. but you know, no matter how bad it is, and even though it's life-threatening, you can't leave the animals, you can never do that, so, so we came back, and uh, like I said, uh, I'm just glad that I had prepared for it, that I had the boxes, they were already built, we had all of the bags, you know, all the extra bags were just left there waiting in the event of a disaster like this, so I didn't have to get any provisions or supplies, I already had them. Okay. That's great. Now, that was a huge thing. That was the biggest thing of all, really. Yeah. I think you talked about two really um, important things there, both uh, letting the uh, animals use their instincts when possible because right. they know how to protect themselves, and then, um, you know, having a plan ready. Um, do you have any other uh, points to make about just how important that, that was to your success? Well, it's, it's so important. I can't stress the, uh, enough how important it is, really. And just one, uh, before I forget it here, I'll tell you one interesting thing. We put a lot of animals inside, probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals were in the house. We left also hundreds of animals outside. And the only deaths that we had that were attributable to the storm were two chickens that were outside. And they could, of course, get cover anywhere, but I guess they just didn't get good cover. No, two that and, died were in the coop. Yeah, and then three albino iguanas that, we, that were inside. And the day get uh, yeah, get because it accidentally got killed. But other than that, you know, it's uh, we, we, we did really well. I mean, uh, the, the animals outside uh, all instinctively knew what to do. They were all in their retreats. I didn't see. I sort of checked out during the storm when I could uh, as much as I could. It actually was dangerous to go outside in this storm, though. You couldn't. I've walked around another. I mean, it blew me outside when I cracked the door open, literally. Uh -huh. I mean, you couldn't stand up in it in some, in some places. Being in Florida, I know you know you must know a lot of the other people that are in your similar position. Um, you were very lucky with everything because of your plan. Do you know of other stories that happened that people weren't so lucky? They lost animals or animals escaped on them? Heard anything like that? I, I don't know of any personally, but certainly there must be some place, somebody that lost something, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, but there was, and there was uh, cage and structural damage to some places. 
and actually to our facility here, we didn't really even have uh, very much structural damage. We had one uh, avocado limb that fell off and pierced the top of a monkey tail skink habitat. Okay. But it was really easy to fix. I mean, we didn't really have to take off the, 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 the top to fix it or anything. We could just wire it back and then just move okay. the, the obstruction. So we, we just, I mean, I, I feel just really fortunate. Good. That's great to hear. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing were the cobras, though. It was just, uh, for one thing, the most dangerous job you can have with cobras or any venomous snake is probably bagging and unbagging them. It's right up there with milking them as far as the most dangerous way to handle them because you have, everything has to be perfect all the time. And a lot of venomous snake bites occur through bags. In fact, the only two venomous snake bites I've ever had were through a bag. So putting that many up in such a short amount of time and then having to put them down again, back again in such a short amount of time, and remember, when we were putting them back up, we had no power. Mm -hmm. We lost power here for 13 days. So wait a minute. So, I, I have to have ask. You, you, I'm sorry. I, I, I have to ask, though, before I forget. You, not yeah. that I will. So you've been bitten by two venomous snakes. That's really cool. That's, yeah, only. Yeah, not, yeah, that's amazing that you've only been bitten twice. But at the same time, among normal. Uh, and, and I've never been bitten handling one ever. That's so awesome. But I, I think among, among normal citizens and us being turtle people too, like that's a pretty cool thing. That's like, you know, like in Jaws when they're comparing like their, their shark well, bite. Well, I mean, uh, these guys are sort of press to, uh, sort of as a badge of courage in how many times that they've right. been bitten or hurt by reptiles. Every time you get hurt by a reptile or you get bit by a venomous snake or get bit with a big monitor or a crocodile or something like that, that means you freaking lost. <laughs> That doesn't mean you won. It means you lost. That's uh, so good. Basically, the reptile beat you. And I just decided, you know, I mean, back when I was looking at this, you know, uh, and writing my memoirs, I don't have any stories to tell about animals seriously hurting me because none, none, not one of them ever has. That's so cool. I've never been bitten bad with any big monitor, iguana, or crocodile, or anything else. Oh, that's great. Never. Not once. You think that um, mainly comes from um, the respect you have for the animals and um, getting to know them at, uh, and their instincts, so you can um, kind of just respond to them. It, it it it's because of knowledge more than anything else of the behavior of the animal and what it's doing and what it more importantly what it's going to do before it does it by the body language that it's giving you, and also learning enough about the animal to treat it with respect, not to push its buttons. I don't want them to try to bite me. I mean, if you go in the rattlesnake room here, uh, it doesn't even rattle. Nothing in the room rattles. There's probably 50 rattlesnakes in there, and I mean, nothing will rattle. And you're walking around, it's a building above the ground, so it, it kind of moves if you walk, and they can feel the vibrations. But they're just, hey, the, even the way we handle them here, we try to make sure they don't fall or we let them drop their tails. We just don't scare them. And if you don't scare them, you're not going to get a defensive response. And that's what we try not to have. Plus, when people see uh, interactions with animals, usually what they see, particularly with dangerous animals, you see the worst side of the animal. You see the side of the animal where the animal thinks it's going to be killed or attacked by the human, so it fights back. And if it's a cobra, it's looking impressive and opening its mouth, and you know how king cobras act and stuff. And rattlesnakes are rattling and trying to bite, and all that, and the crocodiles trying to kill you and popping its jaws. But in reality, that's not normal behavior for these animals. That's the behavior you get when you fuck with them. Mm. If you just leave them alone and sort of treat them with respect and watch them and they become used to it and they lose their fear of you, you don't get that kind of response. And then you get to see what they're really like. And that, to me, is far more interesting. Mm. 
Can you, you can you tell me what you think a snake bite is like for someone, a venomous snake bite is like for someone in the Miami area? I mean, obviously you visited Connecticut where, where I'm from several times and we're amazed by how cold and horrible it is here. But down in Miami, I mean, that's one of the exotic animal capitals of the entire world. Right. So I'm wondering what type of anti-venoms are in the hospitals there. And then also if you keep any of your own anti-venom or, I mean, the, the venomous snake world is, is foreign to me as, as a turtle person. So I'm just wondering if, right. if you could shed any light on what that's like maybe for you. And well, we, we're, we're lucky here in Miami because we have Venom One here. Right. Uh, Jeff Fobbs, Scott Mullen, and uh, Lisa, uh, actually Lisa Wood's not there anymore. There's a new guy that I met and I can't remember his name. I apologize. Chris. I think his name was Chris. But uh, there's three members of the Venom One team, and they have anti-venom for pretty much any sort of exotic snake that's kept anywhere in the United States, pretty much. Uh, they have a, a lot of polyvalents, like from South Africa, that, that cross. Uh, uh, it would be like us taking the crofab we have now for any North American venomous. It's a polyvalent for, like, mambas and cobras and all sorts of stuff that occurred in South Africa. And so it, 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 it has a... a uh, you can use it for a lot of different species snake bites. So they have that here in Miami. So probably here in Miami is probably the best place in the world to get bit by a venomous snake if there's such a thing. <laughs> I mean, it literally is because you have expert help immediately. Uh, you have any venom uh, available within within an hour, which uh, it sometimes means a difference in life and death. And in answer to, do we keep any anti-venom here? The only anti-venom that we keep here is I have five vials of the polyvalent made in Thailand, which covers monocle cobras and king cobras, which are the ones that we, the, pretty much all the rest of the venomous snakes here, we, the anti-venom that any hospital would have would cover because they're North American rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. I don't really sell exotic venomous snakes anymore to the public at large. And the only thing that I don't have any venom for and couldn't get is the main shan viper simply because there is no any venom. Uh, thing. Tom, I have two questions actually. One is from one of our viewers right now. They had asked, okay. um, being that they also have zero experience keeping exotic venomous animals, mm -hmm. do cobras, when they do strike, is it mostly while they're hooded or is that simply bullshit? Um, they, can, they can bite you from a hooded position, not a hooded position, whatever. Uh, the most dangerous time handling a cobra is when it thinks you have food for it and you've been handling rats, and then it's going to try to bite you on the hand, not from the standpoint of a defensive bite, from, but from the standpoint of a feeding bite. Okay. And there will be no hood. That means it'll come after you like it would come after the rat, and yeah. which you don't want because that is really good at doing. Okay. The defensive stuff is more a bluff than anything else, and it's not that good at biting from that position, but from the other, they are. Okay. So. Uh, my second question, thank you, by the way. Uh, my second question is, for instance, in Connecticut, you know, you guys have been up here. Uh, keeping venomous snakes is, for the most part, illegal in Connecticut. Keeping pretty much mm -hmm. any any dangerous animal is uh, illegal here. You know, being that you've been in Florida for a very long time, have you seen laws change with that as far as that goes down there at all? I have, and it's getting tighter and tighter and harder to keep them. But they really, the venomous snakes... Uh, uh, I can see them pass laws where people can't keep exotic venomous snakes only because the person without any venom and somebody knows how to treat the bite would simply die, even yeah. if they went to the doctor, because you can you can only do so much if you have a fatal, uh, a lethal dose of um, certain kinds of venom. I mean, it'll kill your heart. Like King Cobra venom has a powerful myotoxin that has a cardiotoxin in it, too. So uh, that kind of stuff you just have to be really careful for. But 
as far as everybody keeping venomous snakes, they don't pose any as much of a threat as a, as your pet dog in the house. Yeah. They're not going to pose a threat to anybody. It's just uh, it just the idea of snakes and and when you throw venomous in, it just scares people. Mm-hmm. But it's not any kind of public danger or even a danger if they let people have them. I don't see the problem with people handling having North American venomous snakes. The only risk they run is really getting bit themselves for the most part. Okay. And if the if the bite can be treated like any North American venomous snake bite could in any hospital, including in Connecticut, if they want to have venomous snakes, why not let them have it? I mean, just just issue a permit like in Florida and have a regulatory commission. But I I don't see why you shouldn't be allowed to. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Thank you. So as we talk about these these kind of um, really uh, sexy types of reptiles like venomous snakes that are something that like the, the mainstream like average person or TV news outlet or whatever would be interested in, I say, I wonder for you, because you're interested in, in all reptiles, and I don't think many people who those, that, that keep venomous snakes are interested in mud turtles, and that's a generalization. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who would disagree with me, but I, I wonder what is the attraction if you're into, you know, cobras that would also make you attracted to something like a Florida mud turtle or an Egyptian tortoise or something like that. And I ask just because I know that you have experience with so many different reptiles and that you do have an appreciation for, for turtles and tortoises as well. Well, I mean, I, I love all reptiles. I mean, I think I was born, and I said this in somebody else's film, actually in a couple other people's, I think I have a genetic predisposition to love reptiles. I think I was born that way. But I was never one of those guys that sort of specialized in any one single thing. I mean, I've read lots of kinds of turtles and tortoises. I mean, I've read radiators for 10 years. I was, uh, I think, I, I'm actually, I'm sure I was the first person to breed Sri Lankan star tortoises uh, and lots and lots of other stuff. A lot of aquatic turtles, which I still breed today. Uh, and I, I've read a lot of kinds of crocodiles, a lot of kinds of boas and pythons, venomous snakes, lots of kinds of lizards. I mean, I just, I love all reptiles. So I never sort of specialized in any one single thing like some people where they you know like peter pritchard which well since we're talking about turtles he's an old friend of mine too he spent his entire life focused on turtles now he knew a lot about all reptiles but really turtles was his thing and i just never had a single thing like that i like them all and there are a few other people like that too but not so many right right so interesting do, do you have a favorite species that you're working with now a turtle species? uh I, I'm, I'm starting to really get interested in crocodile monitors you know i have uh two uh, adult Salvadori here now, and I have another one coming on breeding lawn actually from a zoo at the end of this month, a really big, about an eight or nine foot male. And I'm going to wind up with, I don't know, probably, I like them enough to have three or four pairs of them actually. And I'm, tra- I'm but I'm training them too, just like I used to train the crocodiles. And uh, they're really, really, really smart lizards. I, uh, I have one of them look in my pocket for pinky mice, or pinky rats, rat pups. I hid one in my pocket once. I mean, they're really smart. Uh, and they're not going to make a mistake and grab your hand, you know, once you train them at all, as long as you just, you know, I mean, I hand feed them. Literally. Are there any reptiles, like, what is your least favorite? Like, I know you asked what your favorite is. But mm, what, my least favorite. Mm. Is there anything you don't like to keep or work with? Mm, I don't like to keep. Uh, I don't like to keep. 
Well, in reptiles, I would have to say probably like things that bore me or ball pythons. Um, mainly because I think they've been taken so far on every like little thing is different to the point that it's like, I mean, ball pythons themselves I like kind of, but I just don't like the way that the whole thing is went, although it's good for the industry and it's good for introducing people to reptiles. But uh, as far as being just something that I just don't like or don't want to keep and not interesting, I would say stiletto stakes, I track taspas. Uh, I never liked those. Uh, there's, uh, you know, they're ones where the, the fangs stick out of the mouth. You can't even, it's difficult to pick them up and they slash sideways. And about at least half of the people that get bit usually lose a digit if they get bit on the finger. It's, it's, uh, the venom is so destructive. Uh, that's a mole viper. That's another the common name for it. I don't like them much. I'm trying to think what else. Attract Tastus Burber and I looks like a really ugly little skinny brown snake that's extremely dangerous yeah i can't i i think probably mole vipers would be my least favorite reptile <laughs> it's pretty much i like most lizards and turtles and tortoises and all crocodilians so is there a favorite tor turtle or tortoise species that you're kind of excited about right now yeah yeah burmese star tortoises i had a friend of mine eric good which some of you may or may not know uh he's a guy who's done a lot with burmese star tortoises he, he gave me, um, uh, oh, I don't know, about a four or five-year-old pair or two female uh, Burmese stars to see if I like them. And he's going to send me a bunch more. I like them, and I'm going to start breeding them, I think. Yeah, like that's as much for conservation as it is for anything else. Is the Burmese mountain and the Vogelai. Yeah, Stacy likes the Burmese mountain tortoise, and she likes the product name is Vogelai, the Vogel's uh, side neck turtles a lot. Yeah, those are great. Uh, I, I like them, too. We, I hope we breed them this year. We hope to. That's great. That's not something that many people have, have done. And I know they were important yeah. years ago. Yeah, I bought them. To, actually, I bought them sort of to rescue them. I felt sorry for them. They're awesome. A friend of mine had them. They imported a bunch of them. And they were, this was about five or six years ago. And they were, I don't know, maybe five inches long. And they're great. Being the females are probably 12, yeah, probably a 12 inch carapace length now. And they're super nice. Turtles, real friendly, super. They'll eat right out of my hand. Yeah. Yeah, most of the turtles will eat the snake next to all of them. I've never, seen, I've never seen a Vogelai 12 inches. That's terrific. And for, for yeah, it's, it's huge. Actually, we have pictures of it here. If, if it's not 12, it's really close to it. I guarantee it's 11. It's the biggest one. Actually, both the females are about the same size. They're the biggest ones I've ever seen. That's great. Ever. Excellent. So if anyone's even, wondering... Even the males, I think, are probably like 7 inches. If, maybe even a little bigger. If anyone's wondering at home, they're, they're in the same genus as like the yellow... Headed or yellow spotted, um, no, the yellow, yeah, like, like Podoc Nemesis Unifellas, Podoc Nemesis Expansa, right, Podoc Sex Tuberculata, right, and then the, the one that everybody likes, Podoc Nemesis Erythrocephala, yeah, the red headed, right, and then there may be a couple of species I'm missing, even I'm just doing it from memory. Just Expansa get giant, don't they? Yeah, yeah, Expansa get really big, that's the biggest, yeah. I had an Expansa once that had probably an 18 or 20 inch shell at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just saw some of the bronze. Actually, I gave it. Peter Pritchard got that. That was one that he got that had a part of the marginals were missing out, and I gave it to him. My wife is excited to hear about that. Peter Pritchard and Tom Crutchfield are my wife's two favorite people in the world. So that's <laughs> she's excited to hear about your collaboration. And you know, you know, Peter has Alzheimer's now too. Yeah, yeah. We we uh, we visited him, and uh, last time was 2015. Yeah, it makes me sad. Yeah, it's it's a really tough thing to see, but um, it is. 
really much else to say about it, but it's a really amazing place to see if anyone gets the opportunity to go to the Colonial Research Institute. In yeah, the turtle, the turtle attic uh, that he has is just an unbelievable place. I've been there several times. That's pronounced Oviedo, Florida, Oviedo? Oviedo. Yes. Oviedo, yeah, no, it's spelled Oviedo, but I right. knew it wasn't pronounced that way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, everybody, everybody just says Oviedo. Yeah, yeah. All right. So if you're ever in the area, anyone, please stop by. It's a, it's a great place to be. And it's a wonderful place. It is. Yeah. I think uh, in the blog post that I wrote about, I, um, Steve actually titled it like 13,000 specimens and no lines or something, because I wrote about how we had spent the day before at uh, Disneyland, uh, Disney World, sorry, and how we had to wait in lines all day, you know, to get on a couple rides that everyone sees. And then you go to this amazing, you know, place that's like a once in a lifetime experience. And, you know, there's definitely no lines are waiting there, but. Um, I know, and, and people don't even understand what's really there for the most right. part, majority of the people. Right. Uh, I don't mean the people that actually go there to see it, but people like in the outside world. Right. And what, and how special and wonderful it really is. Right. We were shocked. We went no, to it's quite, I got so sweaty in his attic uh, one time and Peter, we were up there, we went up there just I, I know what it was to look at that big alligator snapping turtle skull. He's got a giant alligator snapping turtle skull that came from Lester Piper from Everglades Wonder Gardens way back in the old days. I mean, I remember when he got it. And uh, I asked him, did he have it? He goes, yeah. He says uh, he hadn't been up in a while. We went up and looked at it. And we wound up looking at a bunch of other stuff. And it was in the summer. And it was, I don't know if it's air conditioned now, but it used to be hotter than hell. I mean, I remember just soaking wet with sweat when we came back down. <laughs> yeah, it's still not air conditioned. It's still hot. That's cool, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tom, I have a couple questions from viewers right now. Um, first one is approximately how many animals are you currently caring for, like venomous versus non-venomous? And are you and Stacy primarily taking care of them yourselves, or do you have a staff? Okay, we we to answer your question, we have roughly around three hundred venomous snakes. I'd have to look on the inventory. Roughly about that many. Uh, Total animals here uh, depends on the time of year when all the iguanas hatch out and before we sell them. That, and that, of course, that gives us sometimes an extra thousand lizards just right there okay. and baby iguanas. So uh, we might have up to 2,000 animals, but normally we have probably under 1,000 animals here all total. Okay. And are you and Stacy primarily taking care of them yourself? Do you have a staff? Well, we have, we have uh, some part-time help too, but pretty much we do it ourselves because the outside stuff with the snakes and the, most of the lizards take care of themselves with the exception of feeding, you know, just making sure the waters are clean and inside the snake buildings, you know, if I do that three times a week, that's like spotless pretty much. So we're trying to downsize too and get it to the point where Stacy and I can pretty much do everything really. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the only, the only reason we, we couldn't do that really easy now is just with the number of cobras that we have to clean. Okay. You know, and they're, and they're and the iguanas to feeding them that takes a, I get OCD with them. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it takes about a half a day to do them, usually, roughly. Yeah, I get OCD and have to make them spotless. You do. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's good. The second question, first start off with a statement saying that this viewer uh, grew up getting stock lists and faxes from you, with you, Hank Moe, Glades, and others. And his question mm -hmm. was, using the knowledge you have now versus back then, would there be any species that are like so rare now that you wish you would have uh, kept throughout the years that you don't can't have anymore? Good question. Um, certainly, I've always well the same ones I've always felt about. You know, some some of the West Indian stuff, which actually I did keep, like the Jamaican boas, which 
I've kept them going for over 30 years now, Puerto Rican boas, which I've kept going for at least 30 years. Uh, uh, Indian pythons, uh, which I still have a big female that actually I, I'm giving it to a friend of mine to, he wants to get back into him. He's an old time guy too. Stan Chiris actually used to be Rochester reptile in the old days mm-hmm. up in New York, a pretty famous old time, old school herper. Uh, any good Indian pythons would be one. Uh, Bengal monitors I really liked. Also, there was a monitor I used to keep called Ranus Flavesis, or golden monitor from Western India, from Gujarat and Rajasthan. And I always liked those, and they used to be in the pet trade and really cheap. And then with the advent of CITES and stuff, they got put on Appendix 1, and now you don't see them ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like a really, uh, like a cross between a black throat and and kind of a Bengal monitor with pink and orange on Beautiful, some beautiful animals. Okay. You know. Well, you know, a lot of things like that. Thank you. Uh, another question is, what turtle species have you uh, had the most success with in terms of hatching out over the years? Well, well probably what we I've hatched the most of in turtles, certainly, uh, more than anything else, would be Timor snake-neck turtles, okay. which also happens to be probably one of the rarest snake-neck turtles on the planet. That's our, our, uh, Chalodina timorensis. And the one, well, actually, the one we've hatched the most of in, in pure numbers is Gunalan snake-neck turtle, Chalodina gunalani. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hatched out this year, I'm guessing, probably at least 75 of those. Wow, okay. Do you still, Just have, that some Do you still have some left? Or so that's a lot. Out? We hatched out probably about 25 or 30 Timorensis and uh, uh, four of the uh, uh, Chalodina parkeri. Okay. And do you keep those in for a while, let them raise up, or do you sell them I sell them. I also give some away each year to uh, Russ Gurley to the, I think it's called the TSA. Mm-hmm. You know, just to, uh, to give the various people the whole back as a, as a hedge against something happening to them in the wild. But, and, I, and I've kept some too. I'm raising up some now, and I have well, one in the tank, uh, T. Morensis, that I raised up before. So I do keep a few back. I could possibly keep as many as I hatch. Yeah, because I mean, I had usually around a hundred a year at least. Okay, I saw your um, of the three species. Your setup is a, a very, very large kind of pond setup. You have, you know, I, I believe it's a cement structure. I'm not positive of that. And yeah, I it's 36 it's, feet long and 18 feet wide and four feet deep. Yeah, that's amazing. Bigger than my house. Yeah, with <laughs> very, nest boxes, you know. <laughs> very, very hard to do that in Connecticut, unfortunately. Um, very hard. So one thing you said, though, with the nest boxes, and you made a post about a while ago that I thought was very interesting, uh, that I think a lot of people struggle with when they're trying to get their animals to breed and lay eggs, is that you were saying the nest box has to be a lot higher than the water level, you know, because the animals... Well, the, the level of the dirt on any turtle should be much higher than the level of the water mm-hmm. in elevation. Uh, in some species, it's more critical than other species, and it has to be considerably higher or the turtle simply not going to lay eggs. Mm-hmm. Because uh, what kind of a turtle is going to be in a... Let's uh, plastic, and I've seen setups like this where they put a plastic swimming pool, make a fence around it, and then put ramps in and out of it, and then put albino common snapping turtles in there and wonder why the snapping turtles lay eggs in the water. Yeah. There's no turtle that's going to crawl out of the water and lay eggs at an elevation that's, that's less than the water it just came out of. Sure. It doesn't make any sense that it would because, I mean, they know the, the elevation because, I mean, they're, 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 Laying eggs, you know, uh, where the eggs are not going to be flooded. That's the whole idea of it. Right. That's why in a lot of areas in Florida, we have a lot of the uh, aquatic turtles here, the Sidemis mm-hmm. groups that we have. They, they, and, and even soft-shell turtles, too, the Apollon, they're, they're laying mostly in 
in these marsh areas, they lay their eggs in alligator nests. Okay. Because the alligator nests build their nest above ground with a big vegetation, and they all lay their eggs all around the perimeter of it. Now, there are some species like the fly river turtle where the eggs mm -hmm. a lot of times won't hatch until they hit water. You know, have you seen anything like that? I'm sorry? Not a lot so, of I'm sorry? Not a lot what of species. What did you say? I didn't, I didn't no, hear not you. a lot of species. Yeah, they're like the fly river turtle, I believe, and I, I could be wrong. I apologize. Anthony, if you want to chime in on this. Yeah, I have, I have two of them here. Okay. Now, have you had them produce at all for you? No, they're both males, but uh, the fly river turtles, I suspect, would have to have really high banks or feel better about having really high banks to lay eggs because I believe their eggs have to undergo diapause, you know, where they're submerged in the water to hatch. Yeah. I think probably what they do, their reproductive strategy is similar to Matamata turtles. And I'm not, I haven't read up on this. This is stuff that I really sort of coined from talking to other people. They lay their eggs on high sand banks, and then as the river rises, you know, and once it, they cover the eggs, then the eggs all hatch. Okay. Uh, and Matamata turtles do that in the Amazon too. So, yeah, it's definitely very interesting. So I, so I would do it. If I, if I had the ability to breed them, I would probably set them up differently than I have them now. Point okay. being. Yeah. But yeah, with two males, you don't really need to worry about it right now. What's that? With the two males, you don't really need to yeah, worry about no, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not an issue. Yeah. Uh, I do have one more question that was uh, asked okay. a while back, and it's a hypothetical question, of course. You know, so hypothetically, say our president, you know, calls you, and uh, they, they want you to be the, uh, the director of the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, what five changes or any changes really would you make to the policy or the ESA? You know, what would you push for? Well, the only one that really that I, I, first of all, I would keep the Endangered Species Act intact uh, like it is now, except for some of the writing of it. The only thing I would do, I would take every foreign species off the United States Endangered Species list because we have absolutely no ability to protect tigers, Indian pythons or Kachikatecta, Varanus megalensis in Southeast Asia, wherever the hell they're from. The real teeth of the Endangered Species Act is protecting the habitat here. Mm -hmm. And then what I would do is try to get more and more wild areas uh, and leaving them wild public lands here in the United States. I wouldn't be taking public lands from public lands or from monuments and stuff like we're doing now. I would be trying to add to the size of that back in the spirit of Teddy Roosevelt back in the day. That's what I, that's what I would do. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Because animals, the animals, what we need is more space. Uh -huh. And I would be more restrictive on building in wildlife corridors that are important, like with uh, the Phyllis Concolor here in Florida, you know, with Florida Panthers. Uh -huh. They built a freaking city right on the border of the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, which is going to increase the traffic and it's going to increase panther deaths like crazy. Right. Particularly here because they take such big space. So a lot of stuff like that needs to be addressed, you know, locally here at home. I have a question. So you're down in Florida where it's a lot warmer and it's a conversation that Anthony and I have all the time about um, people up north keeping species that are supposed to be in warmer weather. So I wanted to know what like some of your thoughts were on that. Well, I think that people should be able to keep stuff anywhere where they want to keep them as long as they can keep them correctly. Mm -hmm. But it's about the animal, not about the ego of having the animal. So in other words, I'm not for having uh, you buying a baby alligator and saying you're going to put in a facility for it as it grows and gets bigger because you're not. Uh, you're just going to get tired of it and it just becomes an expendable pet. And I mean, I sell albino iguanas, but people still buy iguanas as expendable pets, you know, the regular green ones. They get one and they have no idea how to even care for it. Mm -hmm. 
so then that's the kind of stuff. Because I had Iggy in Connecticut. What do you think about folks who are breeding species that are good for them? I mean, you mentioned the green iguana, right. uh, you know, sulcata tortoises, um, mm -hmm. species like this that are are bred in large numbers, the red ear slider, right. because they're good, they're easy to breed in large numbers. They can live right. easily, but they're not necessarily doing the animals any favor because 95% of them are being sent into to poor conditions because people don't know what they're getting in for. And You're right. You know, do you have any thoughts about that? A lot of people, a lot of your neighbors down there in Florida are breeding those species. Well, at least sulcatas for sure. A pretty what now? I think a lot of people down there in Florida are, and other places in the south are breeding sulcatas and red ear sliders. Oh, God, yeah. Because not, it's good for not, them. Not red ear sliders much, though. Not in Florida, not right. Stuff. Right. If they are, they're just albinos. Nobody's breeding any, like, big numbers of <laughs> red ear sliders here at all. Right. Yeah, yeah. But what they what they uh, uh, actually um, what we're seeing on the breeding of the things the the sulcatas and the iguanas and stuff like that uh, are much easier to breed when you have them outside than inside like you have them there certainly I mean like a, a thousand times easier right do you have any thoughts about maybe like the morality of doing that Consider oh the morality I'm sorry I got off the beaten track yeah. here on the thing. I think that it's a double-edged sword. I, it's bad for the animals, and I don't like it. But I think if you're a kid, like when I was five years old, I kept ringneck snakes in jars and tried to feed them cheese. Yeah. And it started this bad, I would I would turn them loose again. I had no idea how to keep snakes at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's before I met anybody or knew anything. But I think that kids today are so separated from nature that if the only way that they can get back to nature is by let's say getting a bearded dragon, because that's a good example of something that's bred in huge numbers in captivity. Yep. Uh, and most of those die. But you know what? The wild ones would die too. Look at Stacy's phone. That's what Stacy's doing here. So uh, most of those in the wild would die too because they would be eaten by something else. But if it turns kids on and makes them love wildlife and wild areas and we're so separated from nature already, I think it's a good thing overall. It's like having a zoo. Nobody wants to see a gorilla in a cage. No, certainly not me. Right. But by the same token, the goodwill the gorillas do to make people love gorillas because they can actually see a gorilla makes a huge difference. It just makes them love the world around us more. And by the way, and it is the only place that we have to call home. Mm. And so we need to love it. I mean, we really do. So, And one of the ways to do that is to get yourself immersed with nature, but it's very hard for for kids today in big cities, because there's so many of us, we don't have any nature to go to. Kids today are afraid to play in the woods. So a kid's only interaction to anything might be this expendable pet dirty dragon that he bought at a reptile show for 20 bucks, 25 bucks. But maybe, just maybe, that'll stimulate him to do a lot more stuff as he gets older. It's better than nothing. It doesn't really hurt the thing. The animal dies, you know, if it were in the wild again. Probably the reproductive strategy is to have lots and lots of babies in which very few should grow up to become breeders. So, you know, I think it's a good point that a lot of people that were like, for instance, I, I don't remember a time in my life when there wasn't a turtle in my household. My older brother kept them as I was a kid. And I believe the same with Anthony. And I know Steve got into a little bit later, but if that wasn't the case, who knows? I, I don't think I'd be into this at all at this point. Well, well, remember back to when, when, when I first started this and started like, becoming sort of a age of around 19, uh, I was born in the late 1940s, so uh, yeah, I'm really old. 
but in, uh, it, it, when I was young, everyone hated reptiles. No one liked them. Everyone hated snakes. People would run over turtles. They, they, they just didn't care. So my entire life, I've spent educating and talking to people about reptiles. And reptiles started to become in houses, like with, uh, and then Jurassic Park came out. Then you saw this huge infusion of people uh, with reptiles. Uh, and, and now so many people are, there, there's not nearly as many people now that are to be. And it has everything to do with, uh, is that charging up? Hopefully. <laughs> it, has, it has everything to do with uh, uh, just being exposed to it, really. And you're doing that at the expense of the animal, but maybe the expense of the animal that those are all captive bred anyway, it really doesn't make any difference in terms of the scheme of things at all. It's not like you're going to collect anything rare and killing it in captivity or anything like that. It's really not much different than raising up a cow and killing and eating it yourself. It's the same sort of thing. The poor animal in the end pays the price and suffers, but that that happens anyway. Sorry. Sorry about it. It's okay. It was just the phone falling, right? You didn't phone not, not the worst technical problem we've had. <laughs> Because it's just trying to trying to pl uh, plug it in because it keeps saying that the battery's getting low. It's thing up on it. So hang, hold on one second here. Yeah. Sure. It's all right. We got time. Okay. There we go. We got it now. Okay. All right. Good Can job, you it Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Tom, I do have another question for you. This one came from outside of the video chat. Uh, I just got a text message from my friend. Um, his question is this. Do you think that uh, people or scientists should keep captive pools of various animals, primarily, you know, even uh, low-risk species animals, just in case of um, a hypothetical disastrous situation that could, you know, extirpate them? Or Well, there's no way to, to, to keep uh, some of everything. It's not going to happen. I mean, there's just too many things, like having uh, the idea of another Noah's Ark, which just... <laughs> it's, uh, it's all it's no way any of that's going to ever work on that kind of thing uh the only thing you could really hope for is just god i don't know what the solution is to that because there is no good solution well the, the main thing is to learn to just live with animals i mean if people wouldn't want to just kill everything and destroy everything and if everything wasn't simply about money if you could just understand that the planet is a place that we live and that we're all interconnected with everything else and that the biodiversity on this planet is what gives us such, such a uh, an enrichment of life that, that we couldn't purchase or anything like that. But I just I'm not sure we're going to ever get that part okay. of. It. There, there are uh, like the seed databases, you know, where they have millions and millions of different seed plant life um, for disastrous situations. In the same regard, let's say you had hypothetical, you know, of course hypothetically. Uh, thousands of people that were dedicated to this and they each kept a few animals, you know, in small things that they could maintain, you know, would that be better? Well, that's actually being done. I mean, I yeah. give the, the Chaladonna team rinses and Gunalini every year. I've given some to Russ Garley. I've been giving Jamaican boas away uh, for uh, five or six years, uh, probably several hundred of them all over the U.S. to different people to make sure they don't uh, disappear from herper culture and that. But that's not going to solve the animals living in the wild. And that's what really counts. Okay. Stuff in captivity doesn't matter except to us, to the animals themselves that we're keeping. And certainly it would if you had any wild left to put them into. But the problem is, uh, anymore with the wild and the way we behave, it's just very hard to 
to reintroduce anything anyway. I mean, it is. And once you remove it from the wild, then um, it, it, that's a heavy hit on everything. So I just I hate to see the whole thing happen like it does, but it doesn't. It look it looks like it's not going to stop. It's it's unabated even. Okay. Do you have uh, any ideas? You know what a solution for the invasive species issue is in Florida? You know Burmese pythons. I'm, I'm sorry. So do you have? I apologize. I mumble sometimes. Um, do you have you know in your head possibly a solution? What you know? What you think for the invasive species issues in Florida? Uh, are the Burmese python hunts remotely effective? You know, and why hasn't the control of Nile monitors been given more media attention? Well, there's no solution to any of those problems uh, on the invasive stuff, and certainly the Burmese pythons are here to stay. Uh -huh. uh, they're never going to become extinct here. You're never going to get rid of them. Uh, you're not even going to keep the numbers down by hunting them. Okay. The Everglades wilderness areas of. of uh, uh, 3,500 to 4,000 square miles and uh, with very few roads through it. So uh, there's, I mean, the pythons live pretty much uh, throughout the whole area and even areas outside of the park. So you're not ever going to get rid of any of them. And, uh, and it's not just the park. They live in the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, uh, the Fakahatchee uh, uh, National Preserve, the Big Cypress National Preserve, Collier Seminole State Park, right on down into 10,000 islands. There's, there are records of them everywhere. Okay. And the other invasives, I mean, there's a lot of them here. I mean, uh, there's whole cottage industries here where people make their living now catching giant day geckos and Argentine giant tegus and mm -hmm. what, the, what they call now on the market, Florida iguanas, which are actually considered the best ones, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and stuff like that. So That's amazing. I would be uh, remiss if I, if I didn't mention, so we had a comment on our, our Facebook page when we posted that you were going to be on, and it was a negative comment. And at first I got really, really frustrated, but I had to think back to the first time I met you and my, going into meeting you and not, kind of not really knowing what to expect mm -hmm. and my feelings of, wow, like this guy, and I should have known, right? Okay. I, I didn't even, this is my bookshelf that I sit next to. I'm a big fan of, of, you know, the stories of kind of when right. the pediculture was, was coming uh, around right. and everything. And, and you, you do have, um, in a way, an infamous reputation. Um, but I have to say, in talking to you, I'm always so pleased with, I mean, you're so intelligent and, and knowledgeable and, and willing to share. And um, it just floors me every time and i hate to kind of go into this but I, I again i would be remiss if i didn't say it so um i i guess i just wanted to make that that comment but also kind of ask i mean how often uh, you're a bigger guy and you're a no bs kind of guy like do people kind of not have the the you know what's to kind of say this stuff to your face and they just like to say stuff online or yeah most people anything. don't have the balls to say anything to your face ever about anything they're what i call crickets Right. Crickets are those little insects. Yeah. There's a lot of them. They make a full fuckload of noise. Yeah. Until you try to find one or get close to one, and then you cannot find a goddamn cricket and you can't hear one either. <laughs> it's so true. So I, I, That's honestly, a perfect analogy. Honestly, I, I don't need anyone to give me anything on self confidence or anything like that or anything because I always have known exactly who I am. And I, honestly, I like who I am. Yeah. And I've always loved animals and I've never done anything to try to harm any animal. I've smuggled lots of animals, but I would have never smuggled anything also that I would consider 
you know, I might harm it by smuggling him anyway. And I don't give a fuck what people think. And that's the truth. Uh, I had a question tied into that, actually. It was asked a while ago. Uh, is there anything you would do differently now based on your life that you've had, you know, that you wish you did differently back then, I should say? Well, I wish that uh, I had taken a bunch of the Bahamian iguanas back when you could get them. Uh, a lot of us down here caught rhino iguanas and stuff and brought them back in. Almost all of those came in illegally way back in the day. Mm-hmm. But now there's so many rhino iguanas in captivity, no one would ever want to go get a wild one. You couldn't even give a wild rhino iguana away because they're nasty and you can't tame them. And if, if we didn't, and I, I went and looked at the Bahamian iguanas a number of times back in the 70s when you could have just got them and put them in a suitcase and brought them through. And I didn't honestly know how many there were, so I was afraid to smuggle any in. And I never brought a single one back here. Mm-hmm. I did bring 12 Sacro Carinata ones from Turks and Caicos, but there were lots of them there, and I knew it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still the most common Sacro, by the way. There are about 40,000, they think, in the wild. But if I had brought a lot of those Bahamian iguanas back today, they'd probably be like rhino iguanas now. The, the, the Sacro Figginsai and all the other stuff, they'd be common as hell. Mm-hmm. And then if anything happened to the Bahamas, like if anything happened to Haitian rhino iguanas now, there's so many thousands in the United States. No problem. That goes back to that little Noah's Ark thing you talked about earlier. Yeah. Right. And like bearded dragons, every single bearded dragon in the United States came from illegal uh, acquisition at the beginning. They're all in legal terms, what we call fruit of the poison tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we discussed that during our... Because all of the adults were illegal, but yet they've taken the place of all those cheap imported lizards and all the pressure off those lizards used to catch wild. Those lizards died too. The difference is the lizards are captive bred now. Right. And also, of course, nobody's ever going to smuggle a bearded dragon out of Australia. They're cheaper here than they are in Australia. Right. <laughs> easier to buy them than to catch, too, I'm sure. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So, so it's a double-edged sword on a lot of that stuff is the point being. And a lot of people, when they talk, they don't understand. They don't know the big picture or the whole story. They only know parts of it. Right. There used to be a long time ago a famous newscaster that had a radio show, believe it or not. That's how far this goes back. And some of your viewers will know who he is. His name was Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey would give a news report of the day, and then he would have a lot more about the story and the inside of it. And he would then go at the end, and now you know the rest of the story. Mm. And I always liked that. Yeah. He always gave a lot of good information, you know, at the end. But there's a lot more to all of these things than than people think. And a lot of people that are like, quote unquote, uh, esteemed conservationists today smuggle all the stuff years ago. They just didn't get caught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you know a lot of good stories. We don't have to get into oh, yeah. specifics, but yeah, that's that's really cool. Is there anything yeah, going on today that you're very excited about? Like I know um, Iguana Fest was recently, right? Yeah, that was that was nice. Raised a lot of money for iguanas. Yeah, I mean, is there anything else that's going on mm-hmm. that I think that you think people should know about? That's that's uh, yeah. yeah there's doing? crop fest. There's two, actually two crop fests going on. I think one is December the second uh, at Sean Heflick's place called Crocodile Manor, and then there's another one uh, December the seventh. I think at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, which will be similar to Iguana Fest, except it's raising money for crocodiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is for slender sided crocodiles, I think, at Sean's. And I think the one at uh, the St. Augustine Alligator Farm is for Cuban crocodiles. 
what I was so impressed with when, when I saw kind of the story that was shared about IguanaFest in particular, and I am familiar with CrocFest too. I haven't been to any of them, but right. to, to get to the Florida every so often, but um, there were a lot of turtle people at IguanaFest and yeah. there, were even turtles, there were even turtles that were part of the auction that mm -hmm. raised money to go to uh, iguanas, which I thought was really cool. All right. Uh, yeah, did you did you kind of observe that a lot of people that were coming from kind of all walks of the reptile? Yeah. Well, I think people that love reptiles or animals in general in nature would naturally want to go to something like that and to support and benefit the wild animals. Because really, the wild animals are the ones that really count, not the captive ones. I mean, it's nice that we bring them in captivity and all that, but it's the wild ones and having that area left wild and all that sort of thing that's the most important of all. Right. Right. It really is, because, I mean, uh, you can see one wild American crocodile and you can see 20 in captivity, and it's just not the same. Right, right. So all that, that money went to went to wild stuff. That's that's terrific. It, it does. It benefits wild uh, crocodilians. Uh, the, there are a lot of Cuban crocodile research programs going on now, which is uh, uh, they're, they're not that endangered in Cuba <laughs> where they occur, but they occur only in one small part of Cuba that's called Cienegas de Zapata or the Shoe Swamp, which is sort of directly south of, uh, uh, actually it would be north of Havana on a little, looks like a little shoe sticking out, sort of like Italy does. And, uh, and in that one swamp is where all the Cuban crocodiles in the entire world live wild. And there may be three or 4,000 of them, I think, left, maybe, you know, total. So, so uh, I like to see that, and uh sounded crocodiles. I think that they've now discovered that I believe there are two species now rather than just one, mm. and it's benefiting one of those, and those are from West Africa. So, um, another question that that kind of came to mind. So I, I held up both the books, Stolen World and Lizard King, two books mm -hmm. that feature you. Right. I'm wondering if you have a favorite of these two books, or if if hey, I'm really interested for the first time to read some of these stories about kind of how. The reptile well, and her pediculture came out. Which one should I start with? Which one is better? Well, The Lizard King probably is a more accurate book uh, than Jenny's. Uh, Brian Christie probably did a, a little bit better job. Uh, actually, he did a lot better job. Uh, what Jenny wrote, a lot of it's not. Some of it's true. A lot. Some of it's not true. Mm. And it was written in such a sardonic way mm. that it's almost like watching either Fox News or CNN. It's not. It's news, but it's slanted. If I can, it's probably the best way to put it. So probably all in all, Brian Christie's book is the best. And Brian's turned out to be, you know, he's heavily involved in the rhino poaching thing now, too. He's a guy that put the telemetry device and, and, and had that fake elephant tusk, mm -hmm. that National Geographic special, and then and then sold it to those uh, uh, gorillas. And then they took it and they followed it all the way into Somalia. Wow. And they're finding out that the ivory trade is heavily involved also in the... Uh, 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 these crazy uh, jihadist movements and stuff too. Wow, that's so cool. That's and so stuff cool. in Africa, so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of stuff in in her book is good too. It's just I didn't like the way it was presented. I definitely didn't like the way that she. Uh, and uh, I, actually, I hated the way she presented the stuff probably more than anything else. Yeah, she wrote it like, for instance, if 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 you had a friend that. Uh, was covered in tattoos, let's say from the UK, and he came in your house and tripped over a rug. Now you could write that in a book and you could say it a couple of ways. You could say, my friend from the UK came in and tripped over the rug, or you could say, the tattooed thug from the Uk came in and tripped over the rug, mm. by possibly a member of a skinhead gang. Mm. 
Right, right, right. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely, of course. And that's what she did instead of just... Mm. And some of it's not true. There actually were five Burmese, albino Burmese pythons, not just three, and there's a lot of errors in her work, too. Okay. But Brian Christie did get the facts right also. Right. That's so great to hear because, I mean, as a reader, I, mean, I read both books. I enjoyed both books. I right. probably enjoyed Stolen World more, but I didn't know, you know, I don't know that. So to hear that from you, that's really well, she did. Yeah, she so did great. some embellishments in that, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it probably it's, impressed it's, me more. Right. And, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it there's a lot more exciting stuff than in that book too. I mean, even and she, well, neither one of them really had the big picture. Yeah, is there a story yeah. that stands out that you would wouldn't mind sharing of like uh, kind of a hairy situation or something when you were uh, abroad somewhere um, in the past decade or, or something like that? In what, in what in what way? Uh, anyway, it doesn't have to be even, you know, from, from you any... like smuggling animals, catching animals. I'm not sure what you're asking. Me. Yeah, yeah, any of that, any of that, or even just being in a you know kind of a dangerous time at a, a dangerous place at a dangerous time, sort of thing. Okay, a really dangerous situation I got into was in 2015 and uh, up the Sucasari River in Loreto, Peru district, up near the border, with, you know, near Ecuador and uh, uh, Amazon, and we were about. Uh, a day and a half or two days from in Quitos, which is that's the nearest electricity, even much less or medical help. And we were out, uh, we were, I was one of the leaders of the, uh, the, you know, we have an annual Amazon expedition we do every year. And that was the first year. And we were in this, uh, walking down this path at night on our first village, the very first night we were in way back in, in the jungle. Uh, and I, we go across this footbridge and I shine the light down and I see a, uh, a uh, fairly good size, my first Surinamensis, a Suriname uh, coral snake, which is an aquatic coral snake, which gets maybe maybe 1.5 meters. They get pretty big. It's one of the bigger coral snakes, and they essentially are like a sea snake, mm -hmm. or like a freshwater sea snake. The venom is so toxic mm -hmm. that they'll bite a knife fish, and the knife fish will just roll over dead. A bite from one of those is 100% fatal without any venom almost immediately. And there's, there are, there, I think Brazil makes any venom, but it's in such limited supply. They'd never have any in Iquitos, Peru. So if you got bit, you'd just be pretty much dead. Uh, so anyway, but I saw it. And so I, I jumped off the bridge and I thought that the, the water was only about three or four inches deep and it was flowing like gently. And so I thought, you know, I'd just land and maybe bog up to my ankles, but I went up to my groin in mud, literally. And the coral snake was in front of me. And then people on the bank started to jump around because we had maybe 10 people with us, and that made the water move, and then the coral snake started to move, and I didn't want it to bump me and bite me, so I had to make everybody be quiet. Then I grabbed the tail of the coral snake, threw it on the bank, and then had Dante pin it, and then I had to have two people help me out of there. I mean, it was like being in, a, in like the old quicksand pits in the old movies like years ago. Literally, it was hard to get out of, and then we caught it, but it was dangerous doing that, mainly because it bogged up. I didn't realize I, didn't realize I would bog up like that. That's so awesome. So are, are you still, I mean, you, you're still traveling. You mentioned traveling after the storm, and this was as recent yeah, as 2015. Yeah. yeah, we just got back from Peru. We actually caught a Bushmaster this last time. and put mm -hmm. field collected a Bushmaster. Are these are these herping trips, or are you still field collecting animals that you can legally uh, send back? No, 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 no. These are just, these are biodiversity expeditions. We don't take anything but, but photographs for the most part and, and records. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, we've extended the range on a bunch of things, and we found this frog that hadn't been seen in 
uh, like, well, actually, the third one from the area forever, a glass frog we got this time. And things like that, just documenting things more than anything else. It seems like there isn't as much money in importing animals as there once was. I think the risk is higher for smuggling. Um, and then importing animals, it seems like a lot of the animals that you can import that would be worth the money, there's really not as much interest, especially with turtles anyway, I should say. I mean, like people still import, uh, you know, uh, spiny turtles or a lot of the different African mud turtle species or Russian tortoises and things like this. But it just seems like there's not a huge mar market for them because either they're really common because they're still imported or they're just not really well-known and people don't really care that much. So I mean, it just seems like breeding is probably the way to go these days. Well, it's the way of the future anyway. I mean, I personally hate to take animals from their home and sell them. Yeah. Um, today, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't catch anything from the wild to take it just to sell. I mean, I just wouldn't do it. It's not that it's morally wrong to do it. It would just be morally wrong for me to do it at this time in my life. Mm. And I'm not condemning anyone else that does it. Mm. Uh, it's just that I don't want to do it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. But nor 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 do I need to do it. Right. Right. I think that's great. But I can understand those that would want to, like big headed turtles. I used to get twenty five probably to fifty big headed turtles every single month from Danny Wong in Hong Kong way back in the day. Mm -hmm. In the eighties. And they came in all the time. I didn't even want the fucking big said so many big headed turtles you couldn't even get rid of them. <laughs> Sold them for twenty five bucks a piece. Yeah. Now they were coming from the food market, so every one of those was going to probably be eaten anyway, but did we help you know, continue the trade in those by buying those twenty five to fifty of them every month I was buying and I wasn't the only person buying them. There were people like Pet Farm that were buying way bigger numbers than me. Right. Right. And some you know, of those animals and now, up, now, now all of a sudden there are no big headed turtles. Right. Very few, not even in the wild. There's right. just another confiscation. Yeah, the platy sternum used to be one of my absolute favorite turtles. Right. And it's just a shame with all that that all them that came in, so few people were able to breed them, but at least some people are breeding them. Yeah, nobody cared. That's why. They yeah. were cheap. Right. When things right. are cheap, for instance, people have a tendency not to want to care about it because right. it's not worth anything. Because every single thing that we do is we want to place a dollar of value on it in some way, it seems. Right. It's a, it's a huge problem, and we're taught that from birth. So it's, as I've gotten older, it's been easier to put it in perspective, but it's difficult. Right. Tom, while you were out in other countries and whatnot, have you ever encountered any, like, guerrilla groups or cartel or anything that affected what you were there to do? Have I have I been contacted by who? No, have you ever been like an encountered by like guerrilla groups or cartel or anything while you're in these other countries? That could have affected what you were. No, not that we were involved in any way. Uh, only really two or three uh, instances come to mind. One time we were up in the the Golden Triangle up where Thailand, uh, Burma, and uh, Laos come together in northern Thailand, up in a place near Chiang Rai, but on the other side of Chiang Rai. Uh, in the jungle uh, and uh, on the, near the Mekong, that's the border, that's the river with the border between Thailand and Burma. And there was a firefight going on between, I'm not sure if it was, it was, it was they were Karen tribesmen, but I'm not sure if the Karen tribals were fighting the Thai army or if they were fighting the Burmese army. I'm not sure, but, but we heard mortars and stuff very close to us and hitting. And so we got the hell out of there as quick as we could. And then one time with Javanini in Guatemala and, uh, 
actually Chris McQuaid was with me too from uh, Gulf Coast Reptile at that time. We were headed in, in Guatemala toward Lagos uh, Isabel. Uh, and we were going down and there was a, a huge firefight going on with the Guatemalan army and the guerrillas. That was at the first elections in 1985. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jay is the guy that discovered the, the beaded lizard in, uh, in Guatemala. Yeah, the one called Hila Dama Hordam, Charles Bogardai. Yes, Jay Mini, Jay, yeah, the real Montague Valley uh, beetle lizard. Well, Jay's the one that actually discovered it, and we were actually down there looking for it. He had five of them at his house. This is before they were discovered, but but we didn't we didn't find any in the wild. But we were going to Isabel, and uh, there was a firefight going on, and we headed turned around immediately and headed back over the mountains because, and then we worried about the gorillas commandeering the car in the mountains. And if they did, and if the army saw that, they would fire on the car for sure. You know, whether we were in it or not wouldn't matter. So we, you know, so we got the heck out of there. But we weren't really, like, I don't think in any imminent danger or anything. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this question is a little bit cold. Very, very different questions, actually, from me personally. Uh, I don't know the times that you've come up to Connecticut. You know, Stacy has made a post or you made a post saying, does anybody want to meet up, meet me, or go herping with me? Is that something you do wherever you travel? And is it because you want to meet the people that are, you know, like you, or you want to know they know what's in that area? No, no, actually, that's something that Stacy did. Okay. To help me, because I wanted to find rattlesnakes, so she posted yeah. it up there. Okay. But no, I well, never have posted that anywhere, but up there to tell you the truth. Okay. Well, we felt very fortunate to be, to be able to meet you when you came up here. I think, uh, I know a lot of people are interested. So that's something that's pretty awesome. We're glad you did that. Well, I thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I think I think you know there's a you don't know us from anybody. So so for you to be able to say, yeah, you know what, that sounds cool. You know, I'll meet these guys. We could have been the absolute weirdest people we ever met, and I think you would have looked at it and said, well, at least I met some weird people. And I, I yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly how I looked at it. It would have yeah. it would have given me amusement. Yeah. Right. It would have actually given me more amusement than it did. You were a little bit normal, actually. Too much so, sort of, compared to what I'm kind of used to. <laughs> so, with it, actually, you know, we put out a couple of videos, you know, from that day. Uh, were you happy with the way the videos came out? The, the information yeah, process? Yeah. I think you guys did a good job. Great. Thank you. Happy to hear that. Man, you have some on the air about that, huh? You got, you got some cojones, brother. I'm sorry? I'm you sorry? Have, you asked him about it on the air. You got some, you got some cojones, man. You know, I want to know hey, if I'm doing an okay job. Well, and you know what? If I didn't like it, I'd tell you that, too. I really would. I yeah. mean, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. No, I know that. That's why I asked. I know you, you know, give yeah. it to me raw like that, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. My wife's yeah. laughing at me in the background. She should. That sounds about right. Hi, Amanda. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Amanda. Hello. <laughs> so good. So, how cold is it up there? I'm sorry. How, so how cold is oh, it today up there? It was warm. It was like 60. Oh yeah. He's in Pennsylvania. Don't listen to him. It just uh, it's rainy right now. It was still warm up your way. The cold front's coming through though. The next few days aren't going to be warm. I think it's going to wow. be 34 here tonight. 30. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds cold as shit. <laughs> yeah, tonight tonight's a whole different story than than this morning and last night. Yeah, I have to bring my uh my Chinese box turtles inside for the first time tonight. I'm not excited about it, but I'm going to. What kind of Chinese buck turtles? Uh, Cure up Flava marginata? Is that what you mean? Yep, yep. The and the nominate subspecies too, Flava marginata. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I used to sell those for twelve bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I think one of the coolest. 
The Galbenefrons Gal Franz were fifteen. Amazing. That was actually a question somebody asked. How how much Galbenefrons used to be? Well, I used to sell Galbenefrons for fifteen bucks. Then they actually, after a few years, about five years, they went to twenty five bucks. I had to sell them for because they were getting fewer of them. Yeah. I suppose between the food market and the and the pet trade that they damn near, uh, you know, just destroyed them in just like two or three decades. So if you were selling them for fifteen dollars, what were you bringing them in at? Like wholesale. Well, they were costing, I think, five bucks in Hong Kong, and we probably had another like four bucks in them. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I could see people when they jumped up to twenty-five bucks being like, "Man, that's too rich for my blood." I'm yeah. Not yeah, they were pissed off, and we couldn't sell them as many for sure. <laughs> now people are fighting over them for like a thousand. Well, monkey tail stinks used to be thirty-five dollars. Wow. What are they at now? <laughs> About fifteen hundred. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I, I love monkey tail things. I have 14 of them here. So now, are you breeding those regularly? Breed. Yeah, fairly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Interested, Kev? Uh, no, but Charles Lee. What's I, that? I know Charles Lee definitely is. So I was wondering if he was interested in buying some. I, I was. It hurts my heart when he tries to buy things other than turtles. You know. Yeah, I can't. I don't have any for sale anyway. So far, I haven't sold any that we bred. I don't even want to sell any. I like them. <laughs> That's cool. We respect that. If you ever We're decide you want to sell them, please let us know. You know, we'll uh, we'll be one of your first buyers, definitely. Come on, man! Stop selling so desperate. Cut it out. <laughs> no, just Get let them know I'm a fan. You know. <laughs> Kev, do you have any more questions before we wrap this up? Um, that sounds like I, a I no. Do have, I do have one question that was asked twice um, from right. a user named Turtle Talk Michael. Uh, when we released the video, you know, we called the Crushfield Chronicles, um, we t you talked about a cave full of Sterotipus. Um, yeah. You want to know, Belize. why do you think, you know, they were all in that cave? Well, because there was no water anywhere else in that entire giant marsh they lived in. Okay. There was no place else for them to live. Every single thing in the water that couldn't bury down in the mud, there was some sort of pseudo mud holes. And I'm sure deep down in the mud there might have been Storotipus too, but a friend of mine in Belize, Joe Garrell, showed me this place, and he said it's about the right. We went back in there, and there was crocodiles in there, and all these Storotipus, just like big numbers of them, and uh, uh, the other, uh, the trichomies, the other turtles, I think Manusta, there was a bunch of those in there. Uh, but it looked like that, uh, I think that the Storotipus might have been even eating some of the other turtles okay. that were smaller than them, because they were pretty big, you know, so... Uh, it was one of the most interesting things I've ever seen, though, but it was the only water anywhere. Okay. So they didn't have anywhere else to go. What year was this in? It was in Belize. It was in probably uh, 1998, probably. Okay. Were you guys able to document any of this on footage or pictures? What's that? Were you guys able to document anything with either video or photos? No, I bet Joe Garrell probably has photos because, I mean, it does that pretty much every year in the, in the dry season. Okay. I mean, um, he knew he knew they were in there. He took me to see them. Yeah. And you were saying Claudius was a big thing down there. They were very rare. Yeah, like Claudius crossed the rain start. They were, they, I didn't see them in that marsh. They were crossing the roads pretty much everywhere, okay. though, when the rain start. Mostly males. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. looking for females, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I always thought they were really rare, and I'd only seen a handful. And then the first month in the rainy season in Belize, we caught like 30 of them. Almost every time we went out anywhere, we caught them. Okay. So they literally were everywhere. Uh, I do actually have one last question. Um, Okay. Being that you've traveled extensively, you know, throughout the world doing what you do, um, mm -hmm. and at this point in your life, like, say, you know, hypothetically you got rid of all your animals, you know, is there a place in the world, a country that you'd want to live and 
spend the rest of your life besides, you know, where you are now? Well, it's probably two places I would be really happy to live in. I, I, I certainly love Thailand and mm-hmm. would be happy living in Thailand the rest of my life, particularly in northeastern Thailand and Isan. Uh, and I also like uh, Peru. Okay. What are the reasons for those Actually, two places? I, I feel very comfortable there. Uh, I, always, I always felt comfortable in, in, uh, in Thailand for the very first time I, went, I ever went there. Um, Peru, the more I go, the more I like it. I like the food. I like the people. Okay. And more than anything else, I like that I can, once I get in the, the, Amazon, the Amazon part of Peru, once I get to that part, it's really nice. I mean, because there's just not many people. Sure. You have one city, yeah. Quitos, and it's only about 800,000 people, and it's the weirdest mixed match of people. You ever want to see one of the most interesting cities I've ever been to anywhere in the world? Okay. And awesome. uh, I, could, I could definitely live in Peru. Okay. Uh, that's all I have that I got from our viewers and what I was thinking in my head. Anthony or Steve, I don't know if Shannon's still around. Uh, does anybody else have any questions before we wrap this up for the night? Our kids were crying. That's where she went. Okay. But I, I just want to thank you, uh, Tom, Mr. Crutchfield. It's such an honor always to talk to you. And I, I thank you for taking the opportunity to, to let people see the side of you that we've been lucky enough to see and um, to just kind of, you know, teach people um, that there is more to the story and that you are a really well-traveled, knowledgeable, intelligent, and awesome person. And it's, it's really an honor. It really is. Um, well, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, I don't think I resemble your remark, but I appreciate that. I'm, basically, <laughs> what I am is a guy that just really loves reptiles. Yeah. And we appreciate that love very much, Tom. Yeah. I mean, that's all I've ever really been. Or so you can intended to be, really. You can stay on with us um, after we um, are no longer live um, and if you'd like to. And um, for everyone else, you know, check us out next time. Um, the, the TSA and the Turtle Room are collaborating again on a calendar uh, fundraiser uh, to go towards turtle conservation. And those will be available soon. They are and available online to order. Have been for two weeks. For two weeks. They are. You will not get one yet, but you can order one. And I believe they're discounted right now as far as pre-orders go. So uh, They are not anymore. Oh, that ended. Okay, I apologize. No, $14 a calendar. Um, and again, proceeds split between the Turtle Room and TSA. And uh, you should get those to your door around Thanksgiving if you order, you know, within the next couple weeks. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Have a good Thanks night. for having me.